Join me at Revelation 6. If you're newer to Christianity or to the Christian faith and perhaps just learning about exploring it, we're in the book of Revelation and it's easy to find. Just go to the end. The last book of the Bible and chapter 6. We are walking through Revelation and here in chapter 6, we go through books one at a time primarily and look at a specific section. And then generally the next week, pick it up right there where we left off. Revelation chapter 6. I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. We read verses 9 through 11 before Pastor Jared and Ben prayed. In some ways, that builds on the first eight verses, and so we'll read it all together. Revelation 6. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there was a white horse. The horseman on it had a bow, a crown was given to him, and he went out as a victor to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its horseman was empowered to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another. And a large sword was given to him. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and there was a black horse. The horseman on it had a balance scale in his hand. Then I heard something like a voice from among the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. But do not harm the olive oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and there was a pale green horse. The horseman on it was named Death. And Hades was following after him. 
Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those slaughtered because of God's word and the testimony they had. They cried out with a loud voice, O Lord, holy and true, how long until you judge and avenge our blood from those who live on the earth? So a white robe was given to each one of them, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were going to be killed just as they had been would be completed. From Acts 7 and the first martyrdom in the Christian church until this very day, God's people have been opposed by the world, by those who don't believe in God, those who are threatened by the truth of Christianity. The end of Acts 7, the figure Stephen, who serves as a, a deacon in the early church, had proclaimed the message of the Old Testament focused toward Christ and fulfillment in Him and God's dwelling with people. And that was a great threat to the Jewish leadership and their clutches on the structures of Judaism of the day. And they came against Stephen and they killed him. And we read at the beginning of Acts chapter 8 that Saul, we would also know as Paul, approved of this killing. We can go on through the book of Acts to the modern era. About eight, just over eight years ago now, we saw 21 Coptic Egyptian Christians who were killed, executed for their faith. We can look at modern Afghanistan. Just in the last few years since the United States pulled out we know that persecution is on the rise, and there are stories of believers two, three years ago who recognized what was coming, the rise of the Taliban, that the U.S. was going to pull out. And so they began to take the courageous step as Afghanis to register themselves and their religious conviction with the government that they are Christians, which could cost them their life, but they figured this. I can make this step and say that I am a Christian and my family are Christian, which would be the case that if I'm killed or if the Taliban comes after me, at least in the legal structures of the day, my children won't be hunted down. And making that step, many killed. And when the Taliban left, obviously, or the Taliban took over, the United States left 
and the religious freedom that was there to some degree gone. The whole Christian era from Acts 7 and Stephen to, to this very day, it's, it's very likely that there are people today dying for their faith. Not to mention the, the softer persecution that's not death necessarily, but pressure, social isolation, pressure from, from family, pressure at work, not perhaps a government structure or at the end of a gun, but softer pressure, family, friends, work. Wednesdays and Thursdays are my normal sermon prep days, and so I, I begin on Wednesday and try to wrap up as much as I can in one day. I, I, I begin then so I can make sure I'm prepared in case something comes up uh, through the week, which can happen, and, and so if, if time gets away, I start then and, and continue on through Thursday and try to get the structure down and get it in the bulletin and have, have things pretty well organized, give myself time to just brew on the text further and think through illustrations, and I knew I knew exactly that I did not need to, to have some illustration in my mind of natural disaster. <laughs> Kidding me? I got 48 hours. And a tornado in Mississippi. Nearly two dozen people dead. Millions and millions and millions of dollars in property. This is the world we live in. There is death and destruction pointed exactly at believers, and we are just on the, the, the back end, hopefully the shadow of COVID, and we know about this in terms of plagues and natural disasters to this very moment. As we progress through Revelation, we're mindful that God's judgment takes place through these various means, that God's judgment is complex. It's not monolithic. God's judgment can be upon the world in a general kind of way as humanity goes about its normal practices. Humanity being itself, it's, humanity its very best, if you will, at being human, that is depraved. And that means death, destruction of all kinds, and pointed exactly at the church. And that's going to have all kinds of implications that are less direct and general, but cause suffering, cause harm, despite the world and just destruction in the world groaning. We have been walking through Revelation, and as we progress, we are going to be encountering these themes over and over. We are trying to look at Revelation holistically. If you've been with us before, I hope you're getting this a little bit now. I want to pause just a moment to make sure that, that you're following what we are trying to do. We are looking at Revelation as a whole to see these visions and how they relate together and experience with John what he experienced and wrote in such a way that there's no one section of text, no one theme, no one idea that shadows every other idea. Revelation is, is complex. The imagery is profound. And it's the case if we're not careful, one image, one idea can 
be used inappropriately, over-interpreted. And so looking at things holistically is our goal. That's why we took four weeks in chapter one. We took time in chapters two and three to look at each church and let that message remind us of chapter one in previous scripture and even to later in Revelation. We took four weeks in chapters four and five to think about the unfolding message of the composite that John sees of Christianity there and looking later in Revelation as well. And we're going to do that today in looking at these seals, these five seals that are broken at the beginning of chapter six. And we'll come back to the sixth seal in a couple of weeks. One feature that you're going to recognize in Revelation is that we will have boundaries for sermons, but it's often the case that we're going to reach back to the last message and then point ahead. There is going to be a bit of circularity, so be ready for that. And obviously, even today, as we begin chapter one, then I saw when Jesus breaks the first seal. It's not like we can begin Revelation 6 and not think back to chapters 4 and 5. This, it, it's circular and working together. Let me set out three principles briefly that will guide us as we progress in Revelation. This is true for today, and it will continue through the rest of our time. Alexander Stewart says, says the idea this way, just to set up these, these three principles. Up to this point in Revelation, many people agree on the main points. With the opening of the first seal in Revelation 6, however, various interpretive approaches come to different conclusions. The keys for reading John's visions are to be mindful that they're, they're symbolic. They're, they engage in repetition and they have been largely understandable to the first hearers, and we'll unpack those even further. So Stuart's three ideas, let me describe them a bit more in full. Number one, symbols have various references. Symbols have various references. We, we are going to look at horses here and horses with riders on them. Horses are going to figure differently in Revelation and different riders. We're going to think about Zechariah chapter 1 and, and horsemen there and horses and what they figure. But we're used to this already, even coming out of the book of Daniel. There are symbols that can be used for different references, the same symbol, or different references can have the same symbol. It, it, it goes back and forth. Consider just for a moment Alexander the Great and the the, the Greek Empire that, that he ruled, 330 to 321 B.C., figured as a certain metal in, in chapter 2, and then in chapter 7, a leopard, and then in chapter 8, a goat. Different symbols for the same historical referent. So recognize the flexibility of symbols. Number two, be ready for repetition. Recognize the flexibility of symbols and be ready for repetition. Again, we are familiar with this in Daniel. Alexander the Great, Greek Empire, bronze. Repeated the same historical people and, and leader very likely of them, referenced later, chapter 7. Referenced again, chapter 8, different symbols. Be ready for repetition. So symbols that are flexible, and be ready for repetition. Finally, 
recognize the temporal sequence. There is often the case that a near-term temporal idea is in mind, but it casts a shadow that could extend to much later, perhaps even beyond our day. And we are used to this as well with the book of Daniel and the Syrian leader Antiochus Epiphanius, this figure who opposes the church, desecrates the temple, seems to be described in ways that prefigure Antichrist, as Paul even describes in First and Second Thessalonians that we'll read about here in Revelation. These three principles will surface over and over. Flexible symbols, repetition, and a near-term, long-term temporal sequence. And today, setting the stage for much of the book. I agree with those who recognize the breaking of the fifth seal in Revelation 6, 9 to 11 in many ways as the rational explanation for, for much of the book. These saints crying out, how long, O Lord? And it's as if what John sees and writes in his historical situation on the island of Patmos, this vision of what's taking place in heaven speaks to his friends on earth because they are feeling the same way. And to note that these in heaven long for fulfillment of their brothers, long for this sense of God's justice to be meted out. This is not just a simple statement of what John sees in heaven. It ministers to his friends on earth and it ministers to us in our day. We're asking the question, with these saints, how long, O Lord, and why? I want to notice with you in the breaking of these first four seals, the sequence of these four horses, I want you to notice God's judgment here. I want you to notice that God is judging sinful humanity by allowing, allowing humanity to be humanity in all of humanity's fullness. And then think about vindication, the rationale that's involved, the consecrating power of God's judgment so that we orient ourselves toward his eternal dwelling, that we remember the saints who've gone before, that we raise our eyes to heaven. And in Paul's words, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with him in glory. Paul's logic in Colossians 3 is exactly consistent with what we're talking about today. That's the consecrating power of God's judgment in the world. This is not my home. I am not an earth dweller. My ultimate dwelling is in heaven. And because of that, even in my days on earth, this is not my home. Notice with me in the sequence of these four horses. Again, prefigured already in Zechariah chapter 1 and chapter 6 where horses go out with riders. And those prefigure here but, but are a bit different. There's a more of a, a patrolling uh, metaphor here to, to control the earth. These 
Horses seem to be sent out more specific judgment in mind, not just patrolling, but a finality to this sequence of ideas, though these will be repeated in many ways and in, in, uh, descriptions at the, the trumpets and the bowls in, in what is to come. These four horsemen that we recognize in these four seals are popular in culture, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. There are paintings and uh, various artistic renderings of these figures. And John's audience would not be unfamiliar with war, with disaster, and what is described here. I want to walk through these just briefly and note that while the imagery may be a bit difficult to gather up, one of the guiding phrases for Revelation that helps us to maintain an integrity of the book is to not overthink it. I once heard a, a theologian describing the Trinity. He said, just don't overthink it. <laughs> just you just this is someone who's written a lot on the Trinity and he's trying to explain, just don't overthink it. Take the Bible. Don't overthink this. But notice the logic of these horses. And several commentators and, and scholars note this. Number one, this horse goes out with a rider, and this rider is going to conquer. He rides a white horse. This white horse idea we'll come back to later today. It surfaces again. It's a symbol that has different references. There's flexibility to this white horse imagery. But here, it does have the idea of victory. Even George Washington, after he was elected president, went on a tour of much of New England, and he had his white horse that he rode on. White horses continually symbolize victory, and that's what is here. This one is going to go out to conquer. He's a victor, and he's going to conquer. Well, let's just do the math on this for a moment. Let's not think too hard, but let's think a little bit. If one is going out to conquer, and he's going to be a victor, what, what would have to be involved? War, horse number two. The second living creature come at the breaking of the second seal. Another horse goes out. This one fiery and red, perhaps the idea of blood. And this horse is, horseman is empowered to take peace from the earth. If peace is absent from the earth, notice just the taking of peace implies the removal of restraint. That's, that's the, the removal of some kind of restraint. There's a peace that is taken away, and that would imply war, and that's exactly what is described here. Notice verse 4, so that peace is taken with the result that people would slaughter one another. And a large sword, this symbolic reference of a sword is people kill one another. If someone is going to be victorious, people are going to die. If someone's going to fight and be victorious and conquer, there's going to be a battle. And we understand even in our day that when there's a war, finances are affected. We don't want to oversimplify and just use Revelation to think about m m the modern world in every way, 
but there are certain phenomena that are integrated. If someone's going to be victorious, there's going to be a war and blood is going to be shed and somebody's going to pay the cost financially. And even in our day, as soon as the war that began in, in Europe just over a year ago, what happened to prices here for so many things? Still, that's continuing on the supply chains of natural disaster that we'll, we'll think about. These ideas go together. Someone's fighting, someone's dying, and someone's paying, and likely all of us. The exorbitant prices and increases in uh, verses 5 to 6, time and again, the, the prices have increased. But notice at the breaking of this third seal, this black horse that goes out with these scales in his hand. In verse 5, we don't want to make too much of the imagery of a scale, but we do recognize that scales have the ability to measure things in an exact way. Scales have an ability to calculate precise quantities. That's what scales do. Scales can quantify certainty. And notice the certainty that's described in verse 6. A quart of wheat for a denarius. This is just what's heard amongst these creatures in heaven. A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. But do not harm the olive oil and the wine. There's a precision of judgment in the economic impact of conquering and war this far but no further. This amount but no further. And there's a scale to make sure you get it right. This is a statement of God's sovereignty over the consequences of human freedom, which always leads to destruction. The, the problem with humanity is that we have freedom. And God intervening to save, to deliver. But here, God is giving over humanity to fight and to pay for it. The fourth seal seems to be a cumulative destruction of the first three, but provides an additional nuance. The, the first three I've just described here in, in, again, don't overthink it, general kinds of ways. Sociologists could describe this, couldn't they? If there's war, or if there's a conqueror, if you know there's going to be a conqueror, there's going to be war and bloodshed, and someone's going to pay. It's going to have an economic impact across the board. Well, that economic impact has limits. But fourth, there's a quantitative, uh, again, a, a cumulative effect here. But this fourth seal brings up another nuance. It's not just humans fighting. It's not just humans at their very best at being depraved. It's also the natural world. This pale green horse, verse 8, the horseman on it is named Death, and Hades was following after him. And authority, notice the language of intermediary opportunity. Again, expressing God's sovereignty. 
there are fixated limits of quantity at the breaking of the third seal. Here, this horseman with authority, <clears throat> death, Hades followed him over a fourth of the earth. Not all of it, a fourth. Go this far, this quantity, this amount, and not in total. We wouldn't want to press that to be one particular continent or one fourth of the earth that we could identify. No, it's a, it's a symbol. Limited authority to kill by the sword, and notice the end of verse 8, by famine. Famine, we can recognize there might be human participation in, in famine. Supply chains cut off, siege, those might go with the first three seals. But plague, wild animals, perhaps. But these last few ideas of verse 8 remind us of God's sovereignty and judgment even over forces outside of necessary human cause and effect, if you will, in that sense. A couple of weeks ago, in preaching the beginning of chapter 5, Pastor Jared reminded us of Genesis 3 and Revelation 1. We need to be mindful of those today. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, the ground was cursed. In Revelation chapter 1, God speaks of giving humanity over to their sin. God judges by allowing humans to be their very best. Even that, with limits at times. But you go be your very best. I'm going to hand you over. If you're going to exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, have it your way. You go right ahead. But there's another element as well involved, yet in Romans. Not just Romans 1 in God handing people over to sin, but the natural world, natural disasters, Tornadoes, earthquakes, famines, floods, plagues, disease. Romans 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. Paul writing about God's image bearers and the final redemption to come. And until that time, creation itself is groaning. And at that time, creation will be renewed. But until then, it is God's instrument of judgment in many general kinds of ways. This reminds us of the horror of sin. Even for we who are believers... The creation is cursed and it longs for the day when ultimate redemption comes at the return of Christ, when God's sons are finally revealed. 
Until then, the natural world is under God's judgment. The natural world is his instrument. And it makes sense because he's the creator. And so he is using the created to remind the created image bearers that he's the creator. To humble us, to repent, to seek him. Alexander Stewart again comments and makes this connection with the broader flow of Scripture from Genesis to Romans to Revelation. Writing about Paul's logic in Romans, Paul does believe that God will finally judge all of humanity at the end of time, but he describes God's judgment of sin in the present time as God handing people over to the consequences of their own choices. John's visions make the same point. God's judgment in history largely consists of allowing people to pursue their own sin, their own pride, their own lust. But even beyond this, God uses the natural world that he has cursed, that is feeling the effects yet of Adam and Eve's sin to continue on and to judge, to remind people that they should seek him. And in general ways... It's God's judgment. And this consecrates us. This helps us to seek God. This week, I opened up my email. I believe it was, I recall, Tuesday or Wednesday morning, and opened it up, and the tagline in the description informing you of our loss. Friend of mine, student at, at Midwestern Seminary, global campus student, missionary in Honduras, great student, been able to know him. I have video conference with this group of students uh, once a week. Faithful servant there. His son, college student here in the United States, Killed tragically, vehicle accident. Done. No chance to say goodbye. Mom doesn't get to say goodbye. Little brother doesn't get to say goodbye. It's just it. Here's a guy serving God with his life in a foreign country. His son is here in the United States, a college student, killed instantly in a vehicle accident. This is God's judgment. Not judgment in a specific sense that this man sinned and so there's a tit for tat. But this is the world that is going to take all of our lives at some point. And it reminds us of the curse in Genesis 3 and that this is not our home. I reached out to this student, tried to, can I call you? I tried to search through the database. How can I kind this phone? I got to encourage him. And we're doing okay. We're shocked. We, they're rallying with their church. This is going to have a long effect. But if it is the case that this situation is like lots of others that we know about, what is the effect of tragedy upon those who are owned by the Lord? What is the effect of general kind of tragedy and judgment? 
I'm yours, Lord. We've seen it in our own church. Suffering, death, shock. I'm yours. The fifth seal. All of this is for consecration, to remind us that this earth is not our home, that we belong with God, that what we have read in Revelation 4 and 5 is real, that what Paul writes about in Romans 8, hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? If we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. That's the point of the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of those slaughtered because of God's word and the testimony they had. Those 21 in February 2015 executed. To this present day in Afghanistan and other parts of the world, they cried, Oh Lord, holy and true, how long? How long? How long? This ministers, friends, to John's audience. It's not just a report about heaven. It has a rhetorical effect because John's audience is asking the same question. And you might be today. How long, Lord? There's a sense in which asking this question is fruit of spiritual health. How long, Lord? You have put in me the spirit, the first fruits of what's to come. How long? How long tragedy? How long sin? How long will people who are committed to you, God, be persecuted? Shouldn't they be rewarded? You who are holy and true or righteous, you're the judge who does right. How long? How long will you avenge till you avenge our blood? Verse 10 from those who live on the earth. Notice, in heaven, these who have suffered already and are there recognize the persecutors on the earth, and if so, the persecuted. This says to the persecuted, God will take care of this. God will judge. And each is given a white robe and told to rest. And notice the number of their fellow slaves. Notice the language, verse 11. Their fellow slaves and their brothers. I think it's best to take that and as an equative idea. Namely, the number of their fellow slaves. And let me be clear, that's your brother's who are going to be killed as they had would be completed. Greg Beale states the idea this way. In connection with chapter 5, Revelation 6, 1 to 8, describes the operation of destructive forces that were unleashed immediately on the world as a result of Christ's victorious suffering at the cross, His resurrection, and His ascent to the position of rule at the Father's hand. Revelation 6, one day is intended to show that Christ rules over such 
an apparently chaotic world and that suffering does not occur indiscriminately or by chance. This section reveals, in fact, that destructive events are brought about by Christ for both redemptive and judicial purposes. It is Christ sitting on his throne who controls all the trials and persecutions of the church. And he does this to remind us that this is not our home, to consecrate us, to sanctify us, to set us apart for him in the here and the now, so that as we hear those voices in heaven, how long, O Lord, we repeat their phrases, how long. And we remember that they are given a white robe and told to wait for us. And we, by the logic of the text, sense participation in that. This is our home. These are our brothers. These fellow slaves, Lord, let us be worthy slaves to the end, knowing that you have told them in heaven, you holy and true, you have told them that you will judge and you will avenge our blood. Therefore, I can walk by faith. And this is not my home. I want to leave you with five principles, five activities for what we do while we wait. What we do while we wait. Number one, we come together. We come together, and this has been a pattern that believers have done in persecution since the early days of the book of Acts. In Acts chapters 3 and 4, when persecution breaks out, at the end of chapter 3, the church comes together to pray. What we do in the midst of our suffering, when we say, How long, O Lord, what we do is we come together. That's why church fellowship is so vital and important. We come together for fellowship. This is where we get encouragement. This is where we get life. Number two, we come together and we, we pray. Our prayers, Revelation 5, 8, are known in heaven. The elders with bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And in Acts 4, 13 to 29, the church comes together to pray. We come together and we pray. That's what we do while we wait. We come together and we pray for God's justice. We pray for encouragement. Number three, we try to fix the world, but we're not fixated on it. Much more could be said, but let that phrase just settle. We should be concerned about plagues and natural disasters and all the rest and try to do what we can to make things good for people. Maybe our own descendants. The New Testament's full of exhortations to do good, like the book of Titus over and over. Try to do good. Try to do good. Try to do good. We try to fix uh, our, our church tries to injustice in the world of all kinds relationally and, and to, to what we can do in, in taking care of God's created order. Just I know in our own church right now, there are plans to try to help people in need. We want to fix things, but we're not fixated on it. Therefore, we can be fruitful in it. Number four, 
Beware of worldly attachments. What we can do in the here and now, come together, pray, fix without being fixated. Beware of worldly attachments. Beware of, of the, the subtle, small ways that the financial system, entertainment, our own jobs can just slowly begin to grab and root us here. I, I don't know your situation. I know mine, and I know how much I have to work on this. How easy it is for me to think of fame, fortune, power, and pleasure. Those things that can be sin can root us right here. Beware of worldly attachments. And number five, when we grieve, we grieve with hope. Pastor Jared mentioned earlier today that we are going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper And we grieve with hope because there's another rider on a white horse. And we read about him in Revelation 19. This rider on a white horse is the one called Faithful and True. And his robe is stained with blood. And that's his own blood. This is the blood that he laid down for us. So when we grieve, we grieve with hope. We are mindful of forgiveness of sin, promise of eternal life that is to come. We grieve. How long, O oh Lord, when we come together, we pray, we labor, and we do it all in hope because we know of what is to come. It may be that you do not know Jesus Christ today. You don't have this cup. You're not participating. I want you to know that this is where hope is. If those who've been asked to play instruments for us as we partake would come.